women of the Hall of Justice. Hello and welcome to the Voices of Awareness podcast. We're listening to the pioneers of authentic cultural change. I'm here listening today to Pat Mills. Pat is the creator and first editor of the British science fiction comic 2000 AD. He developed the character and the world of the future cop Judge Dredd, which had been made into two movies, the first starring Sylvester Stallone and the second starring Carl Urban. In the early 1960s, Pat was a pupil at St. Joseph's College, Ipswich, run by the De La Salle Christian Brothers. Here he is explaining where his investigation all began. It really began, I guess, um, when I was passing my old school and I knew this was St. Joseph's College Ipswich and I knew that they had, um, you know, the De La Salle order had gone and therefore my attitude was probably like a lot of uh, survivors, you know, it's all in the past, forget it, move on. And then I saw a sign on the gate which said, in the Lasallian tradition. Now, that's a bit like a red rag to a ball to me, because what it means is, although it's uh, now with a new regime, it's still very proud of the Lasallian tradition. And the Lasallian tradition to me, and to many survivors, means um, horrendous physical, and on occasion, sexual abuse. So what I did um, uh, was to start a blog talking about the school. Uh, old boys started telling the story of uh, horrendous physical abuse and progressively um, sexual abuse. And that gave me the courage personally to recount my own experiences. So we all kind of encouraged each other and... Uh, but it, it, wasn't as, it wasn't a quick process. Uh, for the most part, in fact, nearly every occasion, everyone wants to remain anonymous, whereas I don't care. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I'm so damned angry about it. I, and I think, why should I be anonymous? Um, you know, it's not my shame. It's not my guilt. These are people who have behaved horribly towards children and... Uh, it's really important to get rid of this feeling that seems to pervade a lot of survivors, that they, uh, they feel shame and guilt. Now, I, I don't think you can be raised a Catholic without them getting you in somewhere or another, but it's like detecting where, where, where the tumour is, you know? Um, it's certainly not an obvious place, let's put it that way. In other words, I don't have any obvious shame or guilt, but... I, I'm not stupid. I know that they program you to to feel um, I don't know wrong in some way. You know, it's part of the the, the whole um, cult's philosophy. Um, but so name you know coming out of the closet, if you like, and saying who I am and uh, and talking quite openly about it. I think I think is really important to encourage other people to do the same thing.
what do you think allows has allowed you to do to feel able to do that and what's your understanding of people who are yet to feel able to to come out as you say as a as a um, survivor of abuse i think i think i've been very lucky uh yeah very lucky um because my response to these things is, has always been to be a whistleblower. And I can, re I can remember my first experience of being a whistleblower. I think I was around seven, uh, where I went to the local police station, you know. And they, uh, I ran away from this uh, priest, uh, Canon Burroughs, and uh, went to the local police station and, um, and told them, what happened? I, I don't think it was probably quite as neat as that. Was, you know, there's probably a lot of, I don't know, tears and distress and all the rest of it. But my recollection is going there. And I think their response was so positive that, you know, it was a kind of set me up for life. In other words, well, the cops listened to me and obviously they wouldn't do anything because, you know, it's, it's the 1950s. What are they going to do? You know? By talking openly, by being a whistleblower, uh, which I have been all my life, <laughs> um, I, I think it, it's a very successful strategy. It, it keeps the predators at bay. And although it must have cost me um, as a kid on occasion, I mean, for example, uh, a nun tried to shut me up about talking about Canon Burroughs and... Uh, so she grabbed me by the throat, you know, to, you know, shut up or you'll go to hell kind of thing. And um, my vague recollection is, I think my attitude was, yeah, go on, do it, kill me. And then you're really in trouble. It's a kind of a aggressive, I mean, I think little boys, little girls, I'm sure for that matter too, can be pretty spunky, pretty aggressive on occasion. Mm. And I think it's a sort of feat, and I can remember the look in her eyes of, oh my God, if I strangle this kid, you know, we're not going to be able to cover, you know, cover this up. And so it's really a, it's that whole defiance thing that, that, that children have. I mean, I think when you're five, six, seven, eight, nine, I suppose um, you're, like, you're like a little animal, really. I mean, if you think of a cat, right, you try giving a, a, a cat a tablet it doesn't want, it's going to bite and claw and scratch. And I think that's what I was like to some extent. Yeah. Uh, I think I must have been a nightmare for them. You know what I mean? In other words, um, in fact, can I, just, I, I wish... Yeah, go on. Can, can I just... Uh slow you down a bit that's that scenario you've just explained of a nun with her hands around your neck um and you and you saying go on kill me there's that the, there's a particular nature in that of i've got nothing to lose 
so I'm kind of aware that you know that the, the the pain already felt kind of allowed you to be on an edge of resilience with them where your life actually was like well go on you know you yeah that's that's well observed and and thank you for interjecting there because it okay. you're you're putting the subtext to it which i suppose when when you're um i mean in effect i think i was indentured into the the, the catholic church probably like i don't know someone who's a a member of a cult like say Scientology that that's all they know and mm -hmm. I was very much indentured into the Catholic Church so it, every aspect of it, um, uh, it imbued my life and so you kind of um, it, it's useful to get other people's insights into it because all you think at the time is right I've dealt with that one <laughs> and, and then the next one comes along because um, uh, what, what I would say was there were serial abusers. Let's put it this way. So, for example, um, what what drew my attention to the whole? I don't know how you could it. How, I mean, to begin with, when when these kind of recollections came up in midlife, which is normally where um, you're always kind of aware of it, but you kind of push it to the back of your your mind. And then somewhere in your 40s, what's usually called a midlife crisis or something, this stuff starts to come to the surface and you kind of push it away because you've got better things to do. And my recollection of how it unraveled was at first there was Canon Burroughs and I thought, my God, this is outrageous. And um, so my, my, I, I tell you what I did. Um, I thought, right, I have to fight back. But of course, he's dead. And that's the problem we all of us have as survivors. So uh, I have a recommendation here, uh, which is not grotesquely illegal. It's not like, uh, you know, shoving a crucifix down his throat. Well, he's dead anyway. Um, but I needed to do something, you know. And, and uh, on that subject, uh, if anyone's thinking, what's all that about? There's this famous French case in the last two or three years um, where uh, a French kid who was abused um, uh, shoved a crucifix down a priest's throat and, and killed him. Uh, well, uh, that, that wasn't an option that was available to me as Canon Burroughs was dead, but I wasn't going to let it go. So what I did, uh, I hired a private detective um, and I said, I want to know where he's buried um, because uh, when I find out, I'm going to go along and I'm going to graffiti on his, on his uh, headstone, abuser. And um, yeah, he came back, came back with all the details, said, you know, it's uh, uh, grave number seven, row, row 15, etc." And knowing that meant I didn't actually go ahead with it. But that's not to say I might, you know, if something came up in the future, that, that's an option that uh, survivors have because we, we feel so damned impotent. We think, well, what can we do? If you go to the safeguarding officer, they're designed to safeguard the church 
from accusations. That's their function. They're, and I think you brought this up. Uh, you know, they're, they're paid a lot of money to um, to keep people like us at bay. Yeah, um, and the question of who they're safeguarding. Yeah. And, and so, anyway, uh, that was Canon Burroughs. And, and at first I thought, um, well, okay, it's one rotten apple, because that's what they want you to think, that there's just one rotten apple and, and that it's not a pattern. And I thought, okay, well, I'm quite angry about that, but I've dealt with it. And then another one came up and I thought, okay, well, it's just coincidence. And, um, uh, and actually this particular guy, Father Wace, had gone to Ampleforth. Um, obviously I researched him and so on. And, uh, and Canon Burroughs had uh, gone to Cotton, which is a sort of Catholic public school, not, not quite as far up the ladder as Ampleforth, but uh, um, anyway. Uh, and so that memory came back and I dealt with that one way or another. And it's, there was quite a lot to it. And then there was a third, the, the chaplain, the, the chaplain of St. Joseph's, Father Jolly. And I was beginning to think, oh, my God, am I imagining all this? There's three of them. So the three priests I knew, I didn't really know any others because they were the three parish priests. All three of them were abusers. And I was thinking, well, maybe my hometown, Ipswich, is some kind of weird zoo where, where all these people are like, because I still subscribed to, the, um, to what they want you to believe, which is that, uh, you know, it's just the odd exception and the majority of them are, are wonderful and can be trusted. So I found myself um, dealing with a lot of memories. So I had this um, situation where I, I thought to myself, well, is, I mean, how is it possible to survive all this kind of thing? And uh, I, I think that's a challenge that a lot of survivors face because you think to yourself, well, I'm not an alcoholic. Uh, I'm not a drug addict. Um, uh, shouldn't I be one of these? Uh, shouldn't I have, I have been really burnt by these experiences? And of course, the answer is that in a different way, I was. Um, I would say I was probably a workaholic, uh, which is fine. You know, society doesn't mind workaholics. It, it disapproves of alcoholics and, uh, uh, and drug addicts. Um, so being a workaholic, uh, I suppose what it came down to was I was able to write about um, a lot of these characters in uh, well, fairly disguised versions as, as science fiction uh, comic book characters. So that, that's, that's where some of, uh, some of Britain's um, rather popular comic book characters came from so when you say they're well dis well disguised within we're talking about judge dread yeah yeah and and others as well yeah would they be recognizable as those characters for someone who knew them as the as those monks <laughs> those brothers sorry yeah um well 
in the case of in the case of Judge Dredd, it was a contributing uh, a contributory uh, character. Uh, in other words, um, Judge Dredd's a policeman, so he doesn't bear that much of a connection, right. uh, visually at least, uh, to the Dalasile order. But there are so many um, so many connections between the two. They're both stern. Uh, Judge Dredd's stern, unbending. He's he's a man in black. So are the Dalasile order. And um, he has, he's obsessed with uh, the law. And in the case of the Dalasal, um, uh, uh, one particular abuser, at least, uh, he, he's um, obsessed with the Lord and so on. There's a kind of religious fanaticism about him. Like and so obsessed I, with doctrine. Yeah, that, that kind of thing, a, a kind of um, manic religious. It, it, it's hard to know what really goes on in their minds. Um, yeah. But that was certainly Judge Dredd. However, uh, another character who um, uh, kids uh, year in, year out uh, voted as their, their most popular villain was um, a, a science fiction uh, character who's a bit like Darth Vader um, called Torquemada. Uh, obviously uh, inspired uh, name-wise by the Spanish Inquisition. And um, that is much more recognizable and a journalist once said to me, uh, when he, he came to interview me about this character, Torquemada, he said, you know what, I really envy your Catholic childhood. He said, because you, you obviously, got, that's obviously where you got your inspiration for all this from. Uh, and, and the artist as well, uh, who also went to a Catholic school. Um, and I thought, well, yeah, I hadn't realized it was that obvious. And uh, I'm not sure he'd want to swap places with me. But it's a it's a good catharsis, and um, I think it's also worth adding um, that there's, there's a lot of gallows humour about it, trench humour, if you like. You um, you have to kind of laugh at these characters, lampoon them, um, in order to um, perhaps it probably works as a very valuable catharsis. I mean, I'm told the cartoonist Ronald Searle. Um, created his Centrinians characters, which are full of torture and so forth, uh, these Centrinian schoolgirls, uh, when he was a prisoner of war in a, uh, a, Japanese, um, a Japanese camp. So uh, it, it might be a kind of reflex that, that writers and artists go in for, you know, when, they, you know when, when they're dealing with adversity in one form or another, to, um, to fictionalize it and make it easier to handle. You know, in the case of uh, Judge Dredd, he's just a ferocious cop. Um, so, you know, it's drawing on the ferocious, um, and I would say psychotic uh, energy of two or three uh, uh, Dalasal um, monks. And in the case of the Torquemada story I was referring to, once again, it's, it's physical violence uh, that, that you're seeing. So you might say it's comic book violence, uh, but yeah, to explore it deeper, um, yeah, you, you've got to go in for um, uh, you know, something like a novel, a text novel and uh, 
as I say, I'm up to number three in that uh, particular series because, yeah, it is aimed at a more adult audience. So what, to put this into context, would you like to kind of summary the De La Salle, you know, their violence? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, they're... Their villainy. I, I think, yeah, I think their villainy is prob. Well, it, it, it's notorious because um, just to kind of cover it geographically, you, you're talking about uh, major cases in Northern Ireland, uh, in Scotland, where I, I think they're in control of uh, approved scores. Uh, there was a case of um, uh, St. William's School where there was a brother, James Carragher, who was the, the head, and uh, I, I think he's serving the equivalent of a life sentence now for his uh, physical and sexual crimes. Uh, then when you go further south to, um, to my old school, uh, St. Joseph's, that was uh, De La Salle, and you know, there were others in, in the area like uh, Beulah Hill, London, and all of them, uh, you know, as is made clear on my uh, WordPress blog, um, all featured uh, a lot of um, really vile uh, abuse against children, um, physical, physical and sexual. And uh, the thing with um, uh, sexual assaults is people are a lot more reticent about coming forward and you know telling their stories but they're out there on my, on my uh, blog there's there's a lot of them and a lot of them are um very well documented and so that's how i see the background of the dalasal order and of course um they endlessly say they um uh, I think their current mission is uh, certainly the Dallasals of, uh, of Australia is apparently their mission is to improve the lives of young people in need. Um, well, I, I would say personally, that's a, an improvement that none of us need. And they've apologized extensively uh, for their, but that's only when they've been caught, right? That's the only time when they're fetched, when they're taken to court, then they apologize. But otherwise, they do not apologize. So from an outstanding point of view, um, all the numerous crimes on that are listed on, on my blog, they've never apologized for them. They've never acknowledged them. And the current head of the Dalasal um, uh, order in, in the UK, uh, Brother Lawrence Hughes, there's a, a serious testimony against him of physical assault, uh, which I've seen cross-referenced with, uh, with other old boys. So the, these, aren't, these aren't, you know, shallow allegations that are not backed up by evidence. There's so much against this order. Now, how, how far back 
um, how, how far uh, back? Sorry, how far forward? That's a good. That's a. That's and a how very far good... back is? Yeah, is the pattern? Um, well, I think I think the pattern would probably goes right back into whenever they first uh, first appeared. You know, um, in the UK, which probably goes back to the nineteen thirties. Um, I perhaps because it was my era, I kind of get the feeling that the nineteen sixties was a particularly early 1960s was a, was a really bad time. There's a lot of this going on. Um, they eventually left uh, St. Joseph's and it got taken over by some Catholic lay um, people, uh, I, I believe in the, uh, probably in the very early 90s. I think, uh, I think there were still, uh, the Dalasal order was still operating in, in certainly at the beginning of the 1980s. Um, so when's the, the last allegation of abuse? Um, the uh, against the Dallas Sals from memory, I would say it would be Brother Solomon, and that's worthy of lingering on for a moment, uh, because he's an extraordinary character, um, to put it gently. Um, and that would have been in the mid 1980s. Um, and the so let me, swinging monk. That's correct. And uh, what he was, was um, uh, he didn't abuse me, but uh, he, um, he was definitely the inspiration or one part of the inspiration for uh, uh, Torquemada. Uh, he was a prefect of discipline, renowned for his extreme violence and also renowned for uh, sexually abusing boarders. Um, and so this happened at, um, at St. Joseph's Ipswich um, somewhere in the early 1960s. And, and then mysteriously one day he disappeared. And then I think he went to Beulah Hill where the same thing went on. And um, eventually he came, he then had a short career as a, uh, a pop star uh, where he was, uh, he was known as the, the swinging monk and he appeared on one or two television programs and uh, playing the piano, um, kind of like Ross Conway, if that means anything to, to listeners. But after all this, uh, all these events, and possibly after he'd been out to the missions or to a, a boys' town connected with uh, St. Joseph's, he returns to St. Joseph's as a lay teacher and then he's known as Mike Mercado. And uh, uh, once again, the same thing happens. Now, I think on my blog, I must have at least 10 allegations, serious allegations against him. Um, at least 10, I would say. So he, he's very much the Jimmy Savile, if you like, of, uh, of St. Joseph's. I, I wrote up a number one because the Christian brothers uh, there are lots of them in Ireland, and London's so close, so I voted for one. <laughs> Larry Blyden. I voted for number one because if he is a monk, he looks like a swinging monk. <laughs> I voted for number one for the same reason, but I would put it differently. I think he looks like a jolly monk. Very well, there we have it with the votes all in and the minds made up. So let's find out now which of these three gentlemen is, in truth, Mike Mercado. Will the real Mike Mercado please 
Stand up. What? What? Oh. <laughs> Thank you very much. Now, Mike Mercado has consented to play for us, so let's hear how Brother Solomon swings. Brother? been thrown out uh you know because there were there were complaints about his behavior uh i've read his resignation letter which did not convince me um it was quite a strange letter where he was obviously denying uh, the allegations and you can actually almost feel the cover-up in in the way that things were done in in the 1980s mm. and so that if you like um brings us up uh, to, uh, as far as the Dallas Saal order is concerned, uh, there were lay teachers, um, crimes uh, which I think go on probably up to the beginning of the 90s. Uh, that's as far as I can recall any uh, allegations made. But the, the, the net result of, of all this, Andy, is that we all of us think, I'd certainly prefer to think, that somewhere in the 90s, they all cleaned up their act and they don't do this kind of thing anymore, either because the protocols are so tough. And, and so you think, well, OK, it was awful for, you know, all those historic crimes, but it's all in the past. So why don't we just forget it? Do you know what I mean? Because, you know, it doesn't happen anymore. And there's all these strict uh, rules in place, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but. As you, as you doubtless know, um, abuse in Catholic schools uh, continues to this day. And so you can't say hand on heart, well, you know, the, the, the children that are uh, in, in the care of uh, the Dallasal order today are completely safe. They can only be safe when the allegations of, of what's happened in the past are acknowledged. And they can't all be dismissed as, well, we don't have files on them, or you've only got two witnesses on that one, so it's not enough, or, or all the other bullshit that they might come up with to cover up their past crimes. But, you know, 
It's still going on today. Presumably, I would very much like to think, I mean, I was just reading about uh, Ampleforth, uh, you know, the yeah. Benedictine uh, Catholic uh, school. And I would very much like to think that the, the couple of cases that came up at, uh, at Ixa and so on, or maybe there were more than a couple, but they were a minority. And that, I mean, the risks that the um, uh, abusers take must be colossal. And so I would prefer to think that it's all in the past and we can, uh, and there might be the odd rotten apple, but for the most part, things are okay. Now, that's what we are programmed to believe. Um, but I'm afraid I, I believe otherwise for... Uh, a number of reasons. Uh, there still seems to be cases today. Um, it, it doesn't feel like the past, you know, we can just say, oh, this is all history. It's, it's no longer the case. Um, I, I think probably many of us felt, well, you know, when, once this particular generation, um, you know, died, that, that things would be different in the future. And uh, there's the um, there's various cases uh, the, the the one at Ampleforth about a um, uh, a youngish uh, um, teacher um, lay teacher there's um, uh, there's the Father Quigley case which, which is awful and my my own concern really I think is um, the thing that's barely recognized uh, in the UK, uh, but it's thoroughly recognized elsewhere, is organized um, Catholic abuse. Now, um, uh, I think as far as the UK is concerned, that doesn't exist. It's always one rotten apple. It's always one odd guy. And any organization will be in the cover-up. But what, what I'm talking about is where there is collusion, a paedophile ring in effect. Yeah. And uh, um, that's certainly my experience. And it was very hard for me to accept this and make sense of it. I mean, particularly because, I mean, I write fantasy for a living. And yeah. I think, well, I, I, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just letting my imagination run away with me. So I, I kept very quiet about it for uh, several years while I was researching things. And then progressively, um, evidence came forward. There's testimonies that uh, prove, certainly in the case of St. Joseph's uh, College, Ipswich, that uh, uh, there was a paedophile ring in operation in the 1960s. And, that, and that's backed up. You know, that, that's cross-referenced. It's beyond any reasonable doubt. Now, the thing with uh, these paedophile rings um, and it was something I, I wasn't really aware of because, you know, you have to read all this stuff and it's quite horrible to read. Um, but a, 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 an academic in Australia, um, I think, has really proved this beyond reasonable doubt, is that, that the nature of a paedophile ring is that it's transgenerational. And she makes a very strong case for this uh, uh, in a thesis, which I think is called The Dark Network. And um, um, so in other words, as it's younger people come in. Now, I find it very hard to imagine 
that, especially with so much pressure on the Catholic Church at this time, that such transgenerational uh, rings could exist today. But certainly there's plenty of evidence that that is the case in Australia, uh, in the United States, and there was a recent horrendous case in Germany. Uh, and, and when I say a case, what I'm talking about is the testimony of a court. So it's not a case of someone making up uh, allegations and they, they, they are not proved or anything like that. This is all laid out in a court. And the one in Germany, I think, is significant because it involves, um, I mean, it's astonishing to say this, but it's all there. Catholic nuns providing children to be raped by Catholic priests and by Catholic laity. Uh, now, that's a ring. Uh, I think the story broke, let me see, uh, about a month or so ago, I think. Yeah, about six weeks ago. But it's referring to historic uh, material. Again, uh, from memory, I think it would have been in the 70s, that one. So, in, so in, in that case, nuns were the intermediary between children who were being abused and priests who were who were abusing them. Correct, and laity were, played a role as well. Um, I mean, I don't want to go off on a tangent here, and I okay. think the laity is probably too much. But I don't want to not acknowledge the fact that they. The lay Catholic laity is the gorilla in the corner that I think for the purposes of, of our conversation here has to remain in the corner. But I just want to say it is there. You know, the role of Catholic laity is very much uh, part of this. And yeah, they facilitated it. Um, the, and, it's, and it's awful to read. And of course, this is the thing that um, if one was to say, let's say three or four years ago, that nuns were involved in a, a Catholic paedophile ring. Um, most people would have looked at me and said, that's absolutely disgusting. How can you say such terrible things? Well, it's not just in Germany. It's, there's also, I think, uh, two or three cases in Australia of, of similar, um, you know, they're, they're, they're acting as pimps, for want of another word. Yeah. And, but of course, in the UK, um, in the UK, uh, there is no sense that there is any organized Catholic crime. Uh, uh, you know, it's always one rotten apple. Now, what, what, uh, what I take away from that, and I feel quite strongly about is, it took me several years to piece together um, evidence and, and encourage people to come forward uh, with their testimonies on my blog. But if I, if this information, if I can find this information, uh, then I'm damn sure uh, that journalists have come across the same thing. And so my question is, why haven't they reported it? You know, it's, I mean, if we had mandatory reporting, as Richard Scoro is, is strongly advocating, they would have a duty to report it. They would have to. Yeah. But I, I mean, if I come across this stuff, 
than I'm sure journalists have. Uh, And I'm sure the other people, while I think of it, uh, are academics, because academics, uh, in my view, are, for the most part, um, the, the loyal opposition. In other words, they just cover safe territory and they don't go into the bad stuff. So we have an illusion in the UK that it's just it's just one rotten apple. Uh, and when they're all dead, everything's going to be all right again. One of the things Richard Scorer says in Betrayed is that um, the decline in authentic investigative journalism has meant that a lot of this stuff isn't actually looked into in an investigative sense by journalists. They just wait for something that they can safely quote, like an ICSA report, and uh, and that's all yeah. that they publish. It's, it's, a, it's a press handout. I mean... I was yeah. I was shocked to see this when the story of Amplethorpe first broke, which to me uh, was last year's biggest Catholic scandal story. And when the story broke, I, I was expecting it uh, to, to see it in um, in all the newspapers and so forth. And then, to my alarm, I saw that there was a damage limitation exercise going on. Because all the papers, and this would have included The Guardian, of course, um, they were all going in for what was clearly a, a, a press report, a press release that had been issued either by Ampleforth or elsewhere. Uh, and so they, they were all more or less saying the same thing. And there was no follow-up on it. Now, um, on a big story like that, it would be normal for the tabloids at least, to go in for um, survivors' stories or for or against or whatever. And there was nothing. So for, I think, something like four or five weeks, there was nothing in the press about it. And then eventually, I think, uh, the Times uh, came out with uh, um, uh, a further a follow-up on this. But again, it was all very tightly controlled. Uh, the Catholic Herald, I think, has only covered... Uh, one article on the subject, uh, yeah. the tablet, to its credit, has, has done more. But it, it echoes back to what you were saying, that uh, journalists aren't doing their job. And so myself, uh, yourself and others, uh, we're all having to do a job that personally I'd rather not do. I'd rather write fantasy stories and live in la-la land than have to carry out a job that academics and journalists are not doing. And I have to ask myself, why is that? And and I think uh, the word I would use is that they're corrupt. That's the word I would use. And I use that uh, with great feeling because uh, I know from uh, other areas that uh, I, I, you know, deal with in life. Uh, I have some dealings with academics and I uh, give talks at universities and so on. So I, I kind of know the territory. And I think they're corrupt. They're just looking, if you look the other way, when terrible crimes against children are being carried out, then that's the only word I can use for it. You are corrupt, you know. Yeah. 
We'll be hearing more from Patrick in part two and three of this series. So just for now, let's wind it down with Leonard Cohen. You want it darker? Hey, 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 hey. 